This is Ron Stockton. I want to tell you about General William Westmoreland, and especially about the time he visited my campus at the University of Michigan-Dearborn. It was January of 1986. He was 72 at the time. General Westmoreland was the commander of U.S. forces in Vietnam for four years, from 1964 to 1968. The general grew up in South Carolina. He attended the Citadel and then West Point. He was an outstanding cadet in both cases. If I'm correct, he was the top student in his class in West Point. During World War II, he served in Italy and North Africa, and later served in Korea. He moved quickly through the ranks. He was appointed U.S. commander in Vietnam just as the war was escalating. In 1965, he was chosen Time Magazine's Man of the Year. But after the Tet Offensive in January of 1968, when Viet Cong soldiers came bursting through the front door of the U.S. Embassy as the ambassador was escaping through the back door, the country was in shock. It became obvious to millions of people overnight that the war was lost. Westmoreland made a trip to Washington and met with President Johnson. The next day, leaked news reports said that he had asked for additional soldiers, perhaps 150,000 or even 250,000, to finish the job, quote unquote. The explosion of resistance in Congress and the explosion of protests in the streets led to the general's swift removal from command. He was replaced by General Abrams, a much different person, someone without the charisma or bearing of General Westmoreland, someone who just did his job without holding press conferences. Some years after his command was over, CBS News reported that he had knowingly underestimated the number of Viet Cong soldiers in the lead-up to the Tet Offensive. He sued CBS for $120 million. After several weeks of trial, just before the case was sent to the jury, he withdrew the suit. Many observers believe he would have lost. Here's what I wrote after the general left. It was not easy for me to meet General William Westmoreland. Like others of my generation, I had been traumatized by the Vietnam War. I had grown up with the patriotism and trust of the 1950s and had seen it all fall apart in the 1960s and 1970s. I had seen my country poison itself with hatred, conflict, deceit, and violence. I had seen hack politicians ride demagoguery to national prominence. I had seen patriotic Americans defamed, assaulted, drafted, arrested, driven into exile, and sometimes shot in the streets for their opposition to the war. It was not an easy sight. I empathized with the movie hero John Rambo, whose commanding officer told him to forget the war. Rambo said he couldn't forget. It's inside me. As long as I'm alive, it's alive. The whole generation of us felt that way, even those like me who did not serve. General Westmoreland in some ways symbolized all the confusion in my mind. My view was that the general was a decent man who had been given a rotten job and did the best he could. Born into his body, I cannot say that I would have done it, would have done it much differently. There was a certain period of a year or two when I thought the war was regrettable but justified. If support for the war was a crime, then my own hands were not clean. The general visited the university in 1968, 1986. We had arranged three events for him, a meeting with faculty, a keynote speech, and a panel on just war. 
I had arranged the faculty meeting, a panel discussion, and was therefore his host for two hours. As we were waiting for the panel to begin, the general and I were shoulder to shoulder, and I realized he was not very tall. His lack of stature, however, was more than compensated for by his ramrod West Point posture. As I introduced the general to the audience of faculty and invited guests, I pointed out some of the ambiguities of his visit. To many, the war was a current event, but some in that year's freshman class had not even been born when the general gave up his command in 1968. Some in the room had served under him, and others had demonstrated against him. Some people considered him a hero, some a war criminal. I noted that our campus was located in the city of Dearborn and asked the general, rhetorically, if the name rang a bell. Dearborn is a patriotic city, I noted, with an annual Memorial Day parade. On national holidays, its streets are covered with flags proudly flown by its citizens. Professional soldiers get red carpet treatment here. <clears throat> the entrance to City Hall displays the names of those who died in the country's wars. Many of its sons volunteered to fight in that Asian conflict. I pointed out that based on its population, its 62 deaths in that war are two and a half times the national rate. <clears throat> and yet this patriotic town became in 1967 the first political body in the United States to call by popular vote for the end of the war and the withdrawal of American troops. I mentioned those contradictions and said that during the passions of the war, we had often thought in terms of patriots versus protesters. I suggested that in Dearborn, the protester and the patriot were in some ways the same person, and perhaps that suggested something about why John Rambo's words, which I quoted, seemed relevant. The general stared straight ahead, his face, his face revealing nothing. He grunted in reaction to the Dearborn death rate, but made no acknowledgment of my interpretation. Very little that the general said during the next three events of the day surprised me. He made his case for the war and his role in it. He felt it was a war that had stabilized Southeast Asia, especially Indonesia, and the ASEAN countries of Malaysia, Singapore, and Burma. He said the Tet Offensive of January 1968, which shook American confidence, was a disastrous defeat for the Viet Cong, and we could have finished them off if he had been given extra troops and authorization to fight with both hands. He said that President Johnson should have resubmitted the Tonkin Gulf War Resolution every year to force a public debate and to force Congress to take a position. Without that debate, the American public never understood the war. As a result, the anti-war movement, which he saw as the product of emotionally charged campuses, had undermined the morale of our soldiers. <clears throat> During the question time at the public meeting, there were some tense moments. One question was from a young woman, a passionate political militant associated with the Trotskyite Spartacist movement. I recognized her from other gatherings. She attacked the general for his notorious statement that the Vietnamese do not value life as much as we do. In a famous award-winning anti-war film called Hearts and Minds, the director Peter Davis had juxtaposed the general's comment with images of wailing Vietnamese people burying their loved ones. In retrospect, the general surely knew he had made a mistake in saying that, 
but to his credit, he made no excuses. I said it. You're free to disagree with it, but I said it. I admired him for that. Someone asked his assessment of General Giap, the commander of the North Vietnamese forces. Giap had fought the Japanese during World War II and then fought the Americans. He had a legendary reputation. Westmoreland said that Giap was a bad general. Why? He was willing to take heavy casualties. I could not help thinking to myself, General Westmoreland, don't you realize he beat you? Ho Chi Minh has once said that, in the end, the Americans will have killed 10 of us for every American soldier who dies, but it is they who will tire first. Jap's goal was not to minimize his own losses, but to run up American costs so that ultimately the Americans would pull out. We lost 57,000 Americans and they lost nearly 4 million Vietnamese, but we were the ones who quit. Jap and Ho and Mao Zedong and others of the guerrilla warfare school made their strategy perfectly clear in their writings. It was a political struggle, not a military struggle, a war of populations against technologies. I wondered to myself if the general had read those essays, which my students had certainly read. <clears throat> I also asked a question of my own. When I raised my hand, the general was initially unwilling to acknowledge me. You had your shot at me this morning. I suspect he was upset at my comment that there were people who considered him a war criminal, but he did not get specific, so I cannot be sure. Those were not my own views, but were views I thought it important to put on the table. I kept my role as a moderator separate from my personal perspectives. Now I responded to his statement more for the benefit of the audience than for the general. General, this morning I chaired a panel of faculty members. I introduced you in the context of your visit. I did not ask any questions or participate in those discussions in any way. He agreed to answer my question, which was really more of a comment. I said that while he believed the war was justified, many of his troops did not agree. After World War II, everyone agreed that although the war had been terrible, it had to be fought, and they would not have wanted to go back to 1941 with everyone alive and sit it out. In the case of Vietnam, many soldiers felt differently, that they would like to go back to 1964 and not fight the war. In other words, it was not worth the loss of human life. He disagreed and said that they did not feel that way, that those who had fought agreed with him on the importance of the war. After the meeting, my son Ted, who was a teenager at the time, told me that I had been angry as I asked the question. Uh, he was right. I still had intense feelings about the war and was allowing myself to get agitated. And when you're agitated, you should probably remain silent. At least I did not raise my voice or call the general names as other people did. Ted also noted that when the general had agreed to a series of speaking engagements on campuses, he had clearly made a compact with the devil, as Ted put it, that he would accept large amounts of money in exchange for letting people yell at him. It would have been news if the general had said something other than what he did. The man is a human, and all of us need to believe in what we're doing. He fought the most unpopular war in American history, and had to believe in his cause, at least at a certain level. It would have been hard to fault him for those views. But I ended the day with a diminished respect for the general. Two anecdotes illustrate why. The brother of a friend was the military pilot who flew the general around Vietnam for two years. 
When the war was over, the brother bumped into the general unexpectedly in an airport and greeted him. Westmoreland did not remember him. After two years of close contact, he did not recognize his own pilot. This says something about the man and about how he answered one of the questions. A colleague asked the general to address the psychological problems of veterans, especially those problems growing out of the fact that this was a new kind of war without a front or even a clearly defined enemy. The general's response was chilling. There were a few shirkers, as he said, in his command, and a few legitimate cases of war fatigue, well, that goes back to the Second World War, but there was no systematic problem. I was astounded. Did the general not know that the war had given psychiatry a new diagnosis, post-traumatic stress syndrome? Did he not know that more veterans had committed suicide than had died in combat? Certainly one veteran in the audience knew there was a problem. After the talk, he said to me, I spent 12 months in Vietnam and eight months in a psychiatric hospital. And two years ago, when I got up the courage to see Apocalypse Now, I had a relapse. For the general to ignore this and to pass off Agent Orange as nothing, as he did, told me something. I would never have suspected that he did not stick by his troops. Like Napoleon fleeing Russia while a quarter of a million men were left to die in the snow, the general took his fame and ran. No wonder he was so sensitive when CBS suggested he had intentionally understated the rising number of enemy troops prior to Tet. But a second matter emerged during the day that left me even more disturbed. I think it quite possible that had someone else been in his position, the war might never have been fought. The general explained how he had warned Secretary of Defense McNamara of the long war ahead and of the need for public support. He implied that he had reservations about escalation from the beginning. But in the panel discussion on just war, he showed a different side. He spoke of the need to do what the country ordered and how the decision to enter Vietnam had been made by Kennedy and in fact dated back to Truman. He seemed unable to grapple with the concept of moral and political choice. There is the country and its will, and there is emotional dissent, nothing in between. It seemed that this man, for all his talent and distinguished career, was a chameleon who had no opinions of his own except those he picked up from his superiors. He is the kind of person who advances fast in a bureaucracy. He is the kind of yes-man Lyndon Johnson loved to have around. He would never risk a promotion by disagreeing with a superior. Those who work within organizations have seen that type of person in meetings. The person is a political operative. He nods. He submits factual observations. He discusses possible pitfalls. He summarizes reservations which others have made, but never takes a strong position of his own. Later, if things go wrong, he can say, I raised this concern, but it was not accepted. He's the perfect bureaucrat. If Dwight Eisenhower had been in the, the commanding general, would we have escalated? Would he have grunted agreeably as McNamara spoke of electronic walls and technological war as if he were designing cars? There was a noted incident during the Second World War when British Prime Minister Winston Churchill announced to his cabinet that he wanted to invade Norway. His military advisors who were sitting there told him this would not work. Churchill became belligerent 
and insisted that they stop dragging their feet and figure out how to make it work. Finally, his military commander said, if they were ordered to invade Norway, they would do so, but it would be a disaster. Churchill fumed and stormed, but in the end said he would reconsider the matter. The disaster never occurred because career military officers who knew they could be removed by a signature decided that their duty to the prime minister and the country was to prevent a serious mistake. Westmoreland had his doubts about escalation and shared them with his staff. One wonders how history might have been different had he exhibited the kind of courage the British commanders exhibited.